At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We are dead! We are all dead! We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men with power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane! Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction! Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There should be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies, and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is. It just is. Especially with the latest AB Live. Audio version for thee in this eternal now. Jason Reza Giordani returned to the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, Promethean Pirate. He shared absorbing findings about Atlantis, traditionalism, and the dark ambitions of the elite. We also chatted about the role of the philosopher, reincarnation, and the Promethean tools needed to collapse the empire. You say you want a revolution, well, you know we all want to change the world. And we'll keep changing the world with another AB Live this week, with the incredible Ola Wolny on part two of Archon Control of the Zodiac, and then more regular podcasts at the end of January. Samuel Chong and Enna Reitort on the wings, ready to fly you to the Pleroma. We need Gnosis more than ever in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world and Gnostic times. Expect more violence, wars, rising addiction, and suicide rates 
mass depression and societal collapse until more look inward while breaking the outward spell of Yaldibaldi and his rapey angels. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or many of my guests and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, commercial, audiobook, documentary, or whatevs. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. And don't forget I do have an Amazon wish list and a fantastic merch store. Other than that, let us to our latest AV Live. My fellow Americans, I have nonetheless decided to make the following announcement. Jeffrey Epstein did not kill himself. But what is best in life? The open step. Three tours. Falcons at your wrist. And the wind in your hair. Wrong! Conan, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and to hear the lamentation of your women. That is good. That is good. I must admit, Jack, I thought I had you figured. It turns out you're a hard man to predict. Me, I'm dishonest. And a dishonest man you can always trust to be dishonest. Honestly, it's the honest ones you want to watch out for. Because you can never predict they're going to do something incredibly stupid. And we are live. Welcome, everybody. Prometheus Unbound and Prometheus Rising. This is AB Live, and I am still Miguel, your pompadus of Gnosis. Very excited today, as always, to have uh, one of my favorite guests, certainly one of my favorite scholars, and a friend, Jason Reza Giorgiani. Jason, thank you very much for coming on the show to discuss your new book, Prometheism, Promethean Pirate. It doesn't fall from the lips too well. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be with you, Miguel, as always. Awesome to have you. And this is certainly a good read. Uh, it definitely makes a lot of context after Faustian Futurist and Uberman. So I highly recommend it. It's a very personal book, like your last, well, your last book. But this <laughs> one, as many might not know, is nonfiction. So I see people already going in the chat. I'll probably have to repeat this, but Vance could not join us. His Clark Kent persona, his day job, demanded that he be at work. So it will be just me. So if you have any questions for Jason, it will probably have to be super chat and I will do my best to get to them, but there are no guarantees. And yes, please behave over there in the chat room. Uh, yes, don't only rebel against Olympus. Don't rebel against the Promethean spirit that hopefully is taking over today. As far as uh, housekeeping, yes, there will be the audio version uh, probably tomorrow of this. And the show, as always, will be right after this. Uh, will be on YouTube and Rockfin and a few other places in a video format, Odyssey 2. Uh, other than that, yeah, uh, also great shows. In a couple of days, we will have 
Ola Wolning to this on the show to discuss more about the Archons and the Zodiac. And then we will have Samuel Chong, who will be discussing alien visitations and abductions. So a lot of very cool content coming, and thank you very much for making it happen. Please support this podcast in any way you can. Obviously support Jason and his work and all of us independent content creators who are trying to make a difference and break down the simulation. So other than that, well, Jason, I actually had a question that you, it's one of those questions you could probably just do it in your sleep. But sometimes I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking philosophical things. Sometimes I'm thinking of uh, Tanya Roberts and that pool scene in The Beastmaster. So I'm thinking in bed. One of the questions that sometimes crosses my mind is, what would have happened if the Persians had defeated the ancient Greeks? Maybe society would have been better. I'm sure. What do you think would have happened, Jason? You know, this is one of the questions that Nietzsche himself grappled with. I mean, really? I'm, yes, I'm sure he thought about it quite a bit before he went and made the extremely provocative statement that, um, you know, sorry, Manhattan and airplanes oh, yeah. by as always. Uh, the extremely provocative statement that it is the Persians rather than the Romans who ought to have been the inheritors uh, of the Greek legacy and the ones who institutionalized it in terms of a world empire. Uh, so that was a vision that Nietzsche had of the Persians, I guess you could say conquering the Greeks, but not in a domineering or um, oppressive sense, but rather integrating and assimilating Greek culture and empowering it with you know, a strong administrative capacity uh, and the breadth of world empire that the Romans ultimately did. So Nietzsche thought that that was a travesty. He thought that actually it was the Persians who ought to have, as you're suggesting, in the time of Darius and Xerxes, successfully colonized all of Greece and then, you know, uh, basically integrated the brilliance of Greek culture, which was itself catalyzed by a tremendous amount of Zoroastrian and Mithraic influence. And then, you know, help this culture to diffuse on a cosmopolitan and intercontinental scale. And what do I think the world would look like? Uh, I'll make a, a statement even more provocative than that of Nietzsche. I think that we would never have seen uh, Judeo-Christianity. Hmm. I think that by extension, we would never have seen Islam. And that then raises the question as to what hidden forces what occulted powers may have been behind the defeat of Persia in Greece. Uh, because, you know, Xerxes came in there burning the temples of the Olympian gods to the ground. I mean, he sent a rather unambiguous signal, right? Um, while at the same time, the Persians were promoting free thinking and were really responsible, the, the order of the Magi and its diffusion across colonized Greece was really responsible for the inception of Greek philosophy, as I've argued in various of my books and discussed in, in numerous interviews at this point, both Pythagoras and Heraclitus, who are the wellsprings of philosophy in the West, were working for Iran. I mean, they were not just influence, they were literally working for Iran. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I think 
we would never have seen Judeo-Christianity. And we would, by extension, never have had somebody like Muhammad framing Islam on the basis of the Abrahamic uh, heritage in Arabia. And we're talking about probably a, a world history where we would already have cities on Mars by now. But at the very least, we can say that the Persians were far more open towards women and minorities, right? At the very least, we would have had a history, because the Greeks, obviously, no matter what they say, the Greeks gave their women no rights, the Romans, every all these cultures were in they weren't very tolerant, and the Persians always tr were about cosmopolitan, multicultural. Well, without vibe, question, I mean, I've, I, you know, I've written about this at length. The the women with the most independence and power in ancient Greece were prostitutes. Hmm. Women had no rights in Greek society, in, certainly not in Athenian society. They had no voting rights. They had really no property rights. Uh, you know, they were second class citizens expected to live uh, extremely modest lives as respectable housewives. And, you know, the one exception in all of Greece to some extent was Sparta. But even there, you know, it was basically Sparta was like, if you can imagine the frontier culture of America in the 1800s, where, you know, women were expected to have a shotgun and be able to defend the property. It wasn't really like they had equal rights or anything like that. It's just that there were, you know, rough frontiers people and women were expected to be able to hold their own. Uh, in a warrior society. But at the same time in Iran, you know, women had uh, tremendous property rights. I mean, and in fact, it, it was at a level where they had wages equal to the wages of men uh, in various sectors of the labor force. There was paid maternity leave. You had women serving as admirals in the Persian Navy. Uh, and then if you want to go beyond the Persians and look at the other Iranians that the Persians were at war with, because, you know, the Iranian world was much larger even than the Persian Empire. You had just before we went on air, we were talking about Tamiris and some documentary. Yeah. I don't know whether it's a, some travesty or what some documentary. You, it's a fiction. It's actually it. a fiction. I mean, it's a. Yeah. Yeah. Action it's movie. made about Tamiris. Well, Tamiris, the leader of the, the you know, uh, Scythians was the one who killed Cyrus the Great, the founder of the Persian Empire. And in Scythian and Sarmatian culture, which were also Iranian, there were uh, northeastern and northwestern branches of Iranian culture beyond the scope of the Persian Empire, so-called Iranian barbarians. They practically had matriarchy. I mean, the Sarmatians were outright matriarchal, which is the basis of the Amazon uh, legends among the Greeks. And then even in Scythian society, um, women had very, very egalitarian position uh, as compared to anything that we saw in the West prior to the modern age. And for those of you in the chat, if you have seen the movie Tamiris on Amazon Prime, uh, leave some comments. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. I think it's free with Amazon Prime, but I'm curious. Um, so awesome. Well, tell us about the new book. Uh, how did this come about or what is it? Well, you know, I developed this concept of novel folklore in the book that I wrote by that name. It was nominally a, an exegesis of Sadeh Hadayat's novella, The Blind Owl. And in the context of this interpretation of Hadayat, I developed this concept of novel folklore, which in a nutshell, uh, we've talked about it in previous uh, conversations. But in a nutshell, it's developing ideas from out of Heidegger and also to an extent from out of Jacques Vallée. Uh, Nietzsche as well with his notion of monumental history 
it's the idea that Okay, so you have the novel as a quintessentially modern literary form and then folklore as the most archaic form of human transmission of memory and structuring of narrative, right? So in a way, this is a polarity. These are, one would think, as far apart from each other as one can get in terms of literary forms or forms of narrative, let's say, forms of logos. And so I developed this concept of the potential for restructuring the collective unconscious of a people on the level of folklore, which is the level on which, you know, archetypes in the collective unconscious are unconsciously expressed through the folklore of a people, of being able to sort of, uh, I don't know if hack is really the right word, but to be able to exert more conscious control over that process and to deliberatively reweave the folklore of a people for the sake of restructuring their world or for the sake of bringing a new world into being, like we were just talking about the Persian Empire. Well, Iran, you know, um, as you know, the world of the Persian Empire is itself the fusion of the horizons of a number of formerly distinct worlds, the world of the Persians, the world of the Medes, who were kindred Iranian tribes, but then also the world of non-Iranians like the Babylonians and the Lydians in Anatolia. And so what happened there was a fusion of horizons and the development of a new kind of metafolklore that you know structured the world of what eventually became Iran. And so I'm suggesting in novel folklore that that's a process that can be more deliberately controlled, okay, and, and catalyzed with intent. And so I started to write these books, beginning with Faustian Futurist and going then into Uberman as the middle volume, uh, and then completing it in this latest book, uh, Promethean Pirate. It's a kind of conclusion to a trilogy that I would call a novel folklore trilogy, where a new folklore is being elaborated through the narrative that extends uh, throughout these three volumes. And at the same time, the relationship between fiction and reality is being problematized uh, on the basis of the critique of the idea of objective reality that I've leveled from the beginning of my philosophical enterprise in, Prome in uh, Prometheus and Atlas. And so there's a problematization of the distinction between reality and fiction. Uh, and there's also a process of what I call phenomenal authorization, which is an attempt to sort of affect how phenomena manifest in the world by um, operating in terms of a restructuring of the collective unconscious, a reaching into the unconscious of the reader, and also a making conscious of the unconscious of the author. And so that's basically the process that I've tried to engage in in these three books. And the first book was, I mean, putatively a work of fiction, a science fiction novel. The second book, Uberman, involved some level of autobiography, veridical autobiography. And this third volume, Promethean Pirate, is nonfiction. Uh, although there's a running theme throughout them where in each one there's a book within the book. And so there's a book within Promethean Pirate as well, which is called Promethean Pirates in uh, Faustian 
uh, futurist, there was a book that the protagonist, Nikolai Alexandrov, had written called Faustian Futurism. And then Dana Avalon, the protagonist of U Uberman, was writing a book called Uberman in the context of Uberman, within the frame narrative of, Uber of Uberman. So that's also a consistent theme that runs throughout the three of these. In other words, fiction within fiction, like uh, Inception, for example. The film Inception. Right. Yeah, then definitely, uh, or breaking down the fourth wall. And for the audience, yeah, Jason and I did our interview in March of 2018. So it's been a while. So there's uh, plenty on uh, Prometheus and Jason's ideas. Uh, and it all, these are touched upon or summarized in this book. Uh, and in this which, book, which you're interview very, are you talking about, Miguel? The one in 2018? Prometheus and Atlas. Oh, the first one we did. Yeah. Yeah, the first one. That was the first time we did our interview. And almost five years later, time flies, man. Yeah. <laughs> Kronos is just keeps chugging, eating, eating his children. And uh, in this book, uh, you were very open about your childhood and. Uh, people may not know you're a philosopher and a scholar, but as a kid, you were knee deep in the mystical world. I mean, you were you remind me a little bit about like Socrates or William Blake. You were in the imaginal most of the time. Were you just were you born that way? Do you come from a lineage of uh, people with this sort of third eye? I wouldn't say lineage in a genetic sense. Um... My father has had a few paranormal experiences. Uh, my mother certainly had a couple of instances of, I suppose, what you could call telepathy. <clears throat> I mean, visceral telepathy. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them involving myself. Uh, but, but this is, I would say, not really extraordinary. Uh, so I wouldn't say in a genetic sense that's the case. But... Uh, you know, if you mean lineage in terms of spiritual lineage and, you know, transmigration and, and you know, so on and so forth, metempsychosis, that's a subject that I get into in this book and where I make clear that certain parts, well, certain parts, I mean, the basis for the narrative of Faustian Futurist uh, and then to some extent Uberman was embroidered life experience. And so... So, yeah, um, you know, I, I've never wanted to become the subject of parapsychological research, having been someone who, you know, at least started out as an academic and began writing in a scholarly mode. Um, you know, it's not good to become the subject of your own research. And so I, I was very careful for many years not to discuss these things. But um, and then, you know, when I wrote Faustian Futurist and Uberman, one could have dismissed a lot of what I, uh, what I had uh, woven into that narrative as fiction, science fiction, whatever. But I made clear in this book for the first time that uh, no, I've, I've had a number of, um, you know, I mean, paranormal isn't isn't exactly the best word for it, but rather uncanny experiences. And uh, so yeah, we can get into some of that. And they started, you know, in very early childhood. Yeah, indeed. I mean. Uh... You talk about your father. You share how you guys were saw the 1989 uh, UFO abduction, the big one, which you talk about in Closer Encounters. And I mentioned that to Vance, and Vance is, oh, that's a well-known one. The UFOs came to Manhattan, and all ufologists are very, you know, know about this one. And you talk about, yeah, you were having 
visions or past life uh, memories of Atlantis, which has certainly shaped your life into adulthood, and going to the Museum of Natural Science and seeing the whale and having these sparks. So it's almost like your life has been sent to this point in time, don't you think? And my favorite, too, is that you also love the soundtrack to Conan the Barbarian, which I loved as a kid, too. And we read a lot of the same magazines and comics and watched a lot of the same shows. Of that, I have no doubt, Miguel. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was a very rich childhood, and it's uh, nice to see you share about it and be open about it. So the the thing, too, also we want to talk about uh, stuff that maybe you haven't talked about in other books because so many people are familiar with your works and have read your books. But you also talk about the role of the philosopher today. And you even seem to say that, uh, or you go out and say that, there really haven't been many philosophers in history. Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Sartre, and maybe Ayn Rand. Why do you say that, Jason? Or what is the philosopher, some people might ask? Yeah, so the really good question. So um, I suggest that maybe there's been a couple of dozen philosophers in the course of history, and there I'm including philosophers outside even the scope of the Western world. Like, for example, um, Ibn Sina in Iran, or Abu Nasser Farabi, as much as what I what he says about Islam and Muhammad really rubs me the wrong way, but he, I'll tell you why I think he's a legitimate philosopher. And uh, maybe like a couple in India, maybe Abhinavagupta, it, but it's a very narrow scope. Uh, perhaps one or two of the people in the Kyoto School in Japan, but it's a very narrow scope. And, and the reason for that is because as I see it, philosophy, the way it paradigmatically took shape as a discipline uh, in the shadow of Plato and Aristotle or as a, as a discipline defined by their mode of thinking and being. Philosophy has to, or rather the philosopher, has to think across all of the dimensions of uh, the discipline, from ontology and epistemology, in other words, from uh, questioning the ultimate nature of reality and what it is that constitutes knowledge rather than opinion, right? The theory of knowledge, epistemology, all the way to ethics, aesthetics, and politics. In other words, the nature of justice, right? And the way in which that might have to do with uh, notions of beauty and, uh, you know, perception, right? And symmetry and harmony and so on and so forth. In other words, the connection between ethics and aesthetics and how that bears on politics. A philosopher has to think in all of these dimensions more or less simultaneously while developing original and fundamental concepts. And that definition of philosophy, which certainly Plato fits and Aristotle fits, and then later thinkers like, like Kant and Hegel are, are really uh, you know, uh, epitomizing, Nietzsche as well, although in a less systematic manner. Uh, but that definition of philosophy is not at all arbitrary. The reason why I insist on it is because going back to the execution of Socrates and even further back to the burning of the Pythagorean schools, the martyrdom of Pythagoras, who tried to bring philosophy from Iran to Greece, uh, the philosopher has always been someone who challenged the fundamental beliefs and 
um, most entrenched traditions of a society, right? I mean, it is intrinsic and inherent to the task of the philosopher to challenge not only the spiritual beliefs of a society and the entrenched religious rights and customs of that society, but also the political structure, right? To be both a spiritual and ethical and political revolutionary and one whose work probably also is going to bring about a change in the nature of art and literature. I mean, a lot of Plato's Republic is concerned with the deleterious effect of contemporary poetry and art on young Greeks in particular, and how Plato thought that, you know, there needed to be a revolution in the arts. Um, so the reason why a philosopher has to think in all the dimensions from ontology and epistemology to aesthetics, ethics, and politics is because otherwise this putative, this thinker, let's say, putative philosopher may be left with certain unexamined prejudices or unquestioned commitments of either a spiritual or political nature, right? Um, which represent a compromise of that person with his existing or her existing society. And my very Promethean definition, after all, listen, uh, Heidegger and Marx, who are rather diametrically opposed to one another in terms of, you know, let's say, sociopolitical thought. Heidegger and Marx both agreed that Prometheus is the archetype of the philosopher. Mm -hmm. And so my definition of philosophy is very Promethean in that it, it, uh, it recognizes the philosopher as an uncompromising rebel and someone who has a revolutionary approach toward questioning all different facets of society, from science to religion and politics. And so, yeah, that's why I have this definition of the philosopher that I lay out in the first chapter of Promethean Pirate. Uh, and then also, what I also say there, which I touched on briefly, is that it's not enough to just question all these different facets of society. The philosopher's task is specifically the development of concepts. And in that first chapter of Promethean Pirate, I draw the distinction between concepts on the one hand and just like you know, uh, opinions and beliefs on the other hand, or let's say the distinction between concepts in philosophy and theories or hypotheses in science, right? And uh, so, so people who are interested can go and look at that first chapter as a presentation of what you could call my meta-philosophy, mm -hmm. my philosophy about what is the nature of philosophy and what makes for a philosopher. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Yeah, it's fascinating. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, you should do a course because uh, it really couches thing in such a, 
uh, a, not a new way, but a concise way. And it really shows the the passion and power of a philosopher instead of just a guy wondering what the definition of is is or whatever. It's become very archonic in our age. Uh, what about, yeah, you say that it, they're all men, maybe Ayn Rand, uh, Camille Paglia is almost there, you think, or she's not there yet? Because I, I, I honestly, I can't comment. I haven't read her. I, you I, haven't I, read her? Okay. Yes, I haven't read her. It's, it's, uh, she's somewhere on the list of people that I would like to. <laughs> you still, yeah. Um, Ayn Rand definitely was. Uh, mm. I have tremendous respect for her. Look, again, like I said about Farabi. Farabi wrote some political philosophy where he valorized Muhammad as some symbol of, he tried to turn Muhammad into like a platonic guardian statesman, right? And so I have a lot of contempt for certain things that Farabi did. I also have big problems with certain positions of Ayn Rand. I am by no means a Randian, okay? No, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, and, and oh my God, some of her followers, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I have nothing in common with these people, okay? The, the ones especially that got involved with the Federal Reserve, I think they're despicable. But um, that having been said, Ayn Rand is certainly a rare woman who had an ontology. She had an epistemology, extremely theoretically rigorous. Uh, and and uh, her thought spans also from ethics through a, she had a whole romantic philosophy of aesthetics. She had a philosophy of art and literature mm -hmm. uh, and certainly a political philosophy that is revolutionary whether one agrees with it or not it's extremely dangerous and destabilizing and so so yeah um ayn rand was definitely a philosopher and so was farabi much as you know i don't agree with many of his positions and i even have contempt for his character to a certain extent no it makes sense yeah and you bring the idea again uh, any Prometheism is revolutionary. The philosopher should be revolutionary. So now comes, of course, the subject of revolution. And this quote is in your book. And you know how the universe is. Suddenly, everywhere I turn, I'm seeing this quote in a book on, flashing on the Internet. And this is from Heraclitus, who you, you uh, mentioned. War is father and king of all. All things come to pass and are ordained in accordance with with conflict it reminds me uh there is a, a blood meridian by cormac mccarthy there's a figure called the judge one of the best in uh representations of the demiurge i've ever seen or more like blake's urizen but he has this amazing speech how war is god war is what keeps the universe going and but it's he's very materialistic uh, he's uh, into scientism so it, this reminded me too because and then I was reading, I also read recently something that Mark Stavish said that people want their spirituality and their revolutions the same without sacrifice and pain. And that's why we're in the mess today. So that's, isn't that something we have to convince people that revolutions are, well, there's going to be a big alchemical change, if you would. I'm a pacifist, but as uh, Dirty Harry once said, uh, Jason, some people just need some killing. <laughs> this quote is um, one of those uh, dearest to my heart and that I have um, reflected on many times throughout the years and that I've quoted in a number of my books. It's a very profound statement. And you see me really elaborating on the meaning of this maxim from Heraclitus 
in the, the part of Promethean Pirate where I level a scathing and very concise critique at traditionalism and the perennial philosophy, mm -hmm. which I think are inextricable from one another. I think that the liberal-minded, uh, you know, hippie types who are drawn into the perennial philosophy in the terms in which Aldous Huxley stated it, although Huxley himself did not believe in the perennial philosophy, but he wrote this book to kind of summarize the, the Houston Smith version, right, of the perennial <laughs> philosophy that hippies are drawn to, people, you know, from the liberal left are drawn to. I think that leads straight into traditionalism unbeknownst to them. And I pick a particular example of that in uh, Promethean Pirate, namely Charles Upton, who was a San Francisco beat poet, very much from the countercultural milieu, quote, countercultural, unquote, milieu, right. uh, and wound up becoming a traditionalist Muslim. And so, I mean, this is a, this is a very deep uh, argument that I level against um, traditionalism, but in a nutshell, with specific reference to this quote from Heraclitus that you put up there, at the core of this argument is a critique of the idea of the unity of being. The, the idea that there is an infinite and eternal being, which is also supremely conscious, in other words, an omnipotent and omniscient God, which is the source of all being, right? Mm -hmm. That idea that all being emanates from this eternal and infinite being, I've argued in many places before, fundamentally negates free will. And there are various ways in which you see in the position of perennialism or traditionalism, the ramifications of this negation of free will, okay? Like, for example, they will deny that there's reincarnation. They'll say that, because, you know, now they want to believe in the unity of all religions, right? So they have to somehow bring Hinduism and or what they call Vedanta together with Islam, right? And with Christianity. So what they'll say is something like, well, there are these people, every individual represents individual, quote unquote, because of course they don't believe in the individual. But every person represents a unique moment in the illusory unfolding of the singular consciousness of God in finite time. Mm -hmm. And so far be it from you to say that you've been reincarnated. No, you don't have enough autonomy or agency to be a person that would subsist past your death and into another life. What's going on in metempsychosis or reincarnation is uh, the resonance of your soul on a psychical level with someone or a group of someone's very similar to you living in past epochs. And that's all that is. It's a kind of like resonance of very similar people through time and their recollections, reminiscences being telepathically kind of intermixed with one another to an extent. Okay, then picking up or tuning into each other's sort of radio frequency. Anyway, uh, so one of the ramifications, another is that they'll deny that something like time travel is possible. Why? Mm -hmm. Because, and I've in Closer Encounters, I've presented extensive empirical evidence for the fact that time travel is taking place. Mm -hmm. And I have made the case that UFOs are flying time machines. And these traditionalists won't hear it because according to them, 
For time travel to be possible, it would mean that you could extricate yourself, you and the crew of whatever UFO you're in, let's say, you can extricate yourself from 4D space-time and then come back in from sort of a fifth-dimensional perspective, come back in to another space-time, to another place and, and epoch. And that would be leaving the unity of God's being. See, because God is like a single hyperdimensional object. Everything that's ever happened is all happening now, and everyone who ever seemed to be someone, but who really isn't, and the ego is a delusion that needs to be gotten rid of, is just an inextricable part of the fabric of this hyperdimensional object that's God, both object and subject at once eternally. Nice. And so to time travel is to extricate yourself with your UFO with some will and intention of your own, with some diabolical machination in mind that you're going to get out from God's plan, the divine eternal plan, and you're going to come in and mess with it, tinker with it in some way and remake history. Well, the very uh, hubris of imagining that you might do such a thing is, you know, worthy of damnation to hell from a traditionalist perspective, right? And they think that the beings behind the UFO phenomenon are these jinn, these demons who come and seduce humans and try to put these notions like reincarnation and time travel into their minds. Of course, now they can't explain how these jinn exist because supposedly, according to them, everything is part of the being and the will of God. There's a singular divine will, right? So where is this satanic counterforce coming from if everything is the will of God? Right. But of course, you know, they're not looking to to uh, basically lay out rational arguments here. Right? <laughs> you know, one has to deal with their cosmology like one's dealing with the pathology of mental illness. Oh, yes, it's a mess. So, yeah. And you talk about uh, if you want to find out their weaknesses or, or find out the truth. Yeah. Follow the counterculture movement. But this started, I mean, Henry Corban and all those cats. They're also the problem, too, or did it get co-opted? Because as you write, all this nonsense, I love how you slammed Burning Man and said this is a place with Goldman Sachs and all these big wigs and social engineers are there. It's like the biggest phony counterculture festival in the world. Where did this start it or did it get co-opted or you just don't agree with it from the beginning? Yeah, I mean, fuck Goldman Sachs. I mean, yeah, they're there and Google and the rest. But what's really concerning is the Pentagon has the largest encampment of anyone at Burning Man, right? And and the whole event is crawling with CIA and FBI, COINTELPRO people. Yeah, UEF is there. Yeah, everybody. I go into the co-opting of the New Age movement by these intelligence services and, and corporate military industrial complex and so forth. But let's not get derailed. So Corban, yes, Corban. Listen, Henri Corban did a lot of valuable and at that time, groundbreaking work in the area of Iranian studies or, or what's called Iranology. He was really at the Institut Franco-Iranien, which by the way, the Institut Franco-Iranien, the French Iranian Institute is a famous classic institution that Corbin and Sadr Hedayat and so forth worked at back in those days was just okay. closed in Tehran by the regime in protest of these Charlie Hebdo cartoons. That great institution, anyway, be that as it may, so Corbin did a lot of groundbreaking work in Iranian studies. But yes, he was deeply contaminated by perennialism. And one has to read his work with, you know, a lump, not a grain of salt. 
and because see, the th here's the thing. Why does one have to do that in particular with Corbin? It goes back to this quote from Heraclitus. This statement that Heraclitus is making and that's reflected, you know, in a organic and coherent way throughout all of his fragments reflects the ancient Iranian viewpoint of conflict as intrinsic to the cosmos. And so Corbin, in trying to excavate the worldview of ancient Iran from out of Shiite mysticism, which was his focus, mm -hmm. Corbin is missing the soul of ancient Iran because the soul of ancient Iran is an understanding that dialectical conflict is fundamental to the cosmos and it is the precondition for individual free will and self-determination. You can't have one without the other. Free will and personal conscience and the, the capacity to pursue one's self-determined destiny in the thought of Zarathustra, right? And also the will to make this world a utopia. The word paradise comes from the Persian word paridaiza, ancient Persian word. And so the will to change the world uh, and to uh, claim one's autonomy as an individual is inextricable from the fact that there is no all-knowing and all-powerful God and the fabric of being is not unified. There is dissonance and chaos as a persistent force in cosmic evolution without which there wouldn't be any evolution. Okay, so sepantominu, or to put it in Greek, Promethea, this, you know, forward-oriented evolutionary and revolutionary force, not just in human history, but in cosmic history, requires the persistence of dissonance and a finitude of being, which isn't to say, as, as Gautama Buddha, I think, rightly recognized, all things are, in a certain sense, interpenetrating and dependent on one another and devoid of any inherent essence. But see, Gautama's insight is as devastating to the traditionalist viewpoint as Zarathustra's because Gautama is pointing out in a way that I very much affirm in Promethean Pirate on a number of occasions, I mentioned Gautama Buddha and uh, note that there are elements of his thinking that are very close to what I'm trying to develop with Prometheism especially in his ontology and epistemology. And one of them is this idea that, look, there's no Atman. There, at the core of the traditionalist worldview is this mirroring of Brahman, the supreme being, in the microcosm of Atman as the indestructible soul. I, say, I, I was about to say individual soul, but see, the very point is that these traditionalists that want to bring together Vedanta, Islam, whatever, Confucianism, and I don't know, Catholic, traditionalist Catholicism, they think that this Atman has no individual character. It's the same in all of us. And so the ego is an impediment. You have to get rid of yourself. You have to empty yourself and become this unadulterated Atman and therefore a proper embodiment or reflection of, of the divine, right? And so... Gautama Buddha dynamites this in a really rigorous critique of personal identity and also of an eternal and infinite substance. And so that's another idea that is very central to Promethean Pirate because I argue that um, basically 
this view of no self and the denial of any God of the type of, of Brahman or of the one or whatever, this view was at the core of the rebellion in Atlantis and that the conflict between traditionalism and what the traditionalists call the counter tradition or the counter initiation, the satanic counter initiation, this goes all the way back to Atlantis. And we see it reflected in the narratives of Plato, Rudolf Steiner, Edgar Cayce, it's in all of these, uh, you know, meta narratives about Atlantis. One of the constants there is this fundamental ideological conflict or conflict of cosmologies and, and worldviews um, between those who were essentially uh, monists who used their monism to justify hierarchy and a static tradition versus those who wanted a fluid and dynamic and evolutionary conception of the self, of an evolving and, and constructed and reconstructed self, uh, and who denied the existence of God, capital G. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously the blueprints of mind control is a lot what you've said there with these traditionalists, because a weak ego is easy to control for all in the image. Whose image of God? And as Evie said before, we've been, I don't know, taught that, again, God is this all-knowing blob of everything. But as, as you've said, there, Ahura Mazda is not omniscient, omnipotent, or omnipresent. He's just the ultimate symbol of wisdom, right? Ahura Mazda is basically akin to Vallis in Dick's cosmology. And, mm -hmm. and this is something that PKD knew quite consciously. He was very consciously uh, and directly influenced by Zoroastrianism. If you read the exegesis, you see that, you know, PKD is sitting there reading Zoroastrian texts. And he was... Yeah, Zoroaster was one of the four saviors of the universe. And... He was influenced in that respect by Bishop Pike, who he believed that Bishop Pike was assassinated. He was this important bishop in the 60s. Yeah. And... Pike had come to believe, according to PKD, Pike had come to believe that Christianity as it, he was a Christian bishop, right? But he had come to believe that Christianity as it existed was a false religion and that the true religion was Zoroastrianism. Uh, and he was very careful not to say this publicly, but he started to sort of insinuate this more often. And Philip K. Dick thought that he was assassinated for it, that his, his death was not an accident where he basically, um, what did he, he basically uh, died of thirst in the Negev desert or something like that. Yeah. A anyway, um, Ahura Mazda is a finite, super conscious, creative being operating on a cosmic scale. That's what Ahura Mazda is for Zarathustra. Not anything like an infinite, uh, omnipotent, omniscient God. And Ahura Mazda enjoins man to choose decide with his creative enterprise rather than with uh, Ahriman, which is the force of constriction and constraint um, and retardation, basically, uh, on a cosmic scale. Um, and so, you know, Zarathustra is basically telling people, look, choose Ahura Mazda, choose creative evolution. Don't be a retard, right? Don't choose retardation. Um, and... Uh, that presumes that we have the free will to choose because, you know, God doesn't encompass us. And in fact, God needs us in order to 
uh, accomplish the divine plan for you know a more ideal society and a positive transformation of the world. Uh, really well said. Uh, at the same time, and going back to the idea of revolution, um, and let me quote uh, from your book. Uh, there's a lot of notes and great quotes, Jason. I like this one. <clears throat> Excuse me again. Prometheus epitomizes our superhuman potential for an intrepid pursuit of knowledge, boundless, boundless industrious, industriousness, a chivalrous, free-spirited sense of camaraderie, and what Nietzsche called a defiance of the spirit of gravity through the mirth of the trickster as much as through the ecstasy of tragic self-sacrifice and recreative self-destruction. I think that quote there is a good summary of the Promethean ethos, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, that basically says it all. I mean, <laughs> to, be, to be frank, there are a lot of pithy passages in this book. The, the style of this book, uh, it really packs a punch in, in, you know, very like, you know, it's very Heraclitean. You can take individual fragments of this book and you could write like, you know, a whole chapter, if not a whole book on the basis of them. And in particular, the very first chapter is the most sort of crystalline and concise summary of my entire philosophical project. Yeah, indeed. And some may be asking, well, what, what's what's the pirate? Why the pirate? Where did the pirate come from, Jason? And you say Prometheus is history's first pirate, right? Yeah, well, he stole the fire from the forge of Hephaestus uh, as a means to empower mankind with uh, science and technology and also the arts, right? I mean, people often forget that techne, when, when Aeschylus talks about how Prometheus, you know, uh, brought fire as a means to empower man with techne, techne for the Greeks doesn't just mean technology uh, or the sciences. Techne also refers to the arts. And so, and Prometheus was the first great figure of tragic drama. And so Prometheus also is the uh, gift giver of the arts in the sense in which, let's say, in the Italian Renaissance, the arts were not so separate from the sciences and from technology, where in a figure like da Vinci, you see this unity of techne that was how the Greeks conceived of craft in general, right? So Prometheus is the crafty one, also in the sense of being a trickster, like pirates are. All pirates, ha pirates have to be tricksters to an extent. Right. They have to be people who engage in um, shrewd and sly machinations with a great deal of guile and cunning. And, uh, you know, they're thieves and Prometheus is a thief. OK, but they're thieves who are intending to liberate. They're thieves whose thievery is a rebellion against injustice and oppressive authority. And um, what they the gift that they give with their thievery. Uh, catalyzes liberation and enlightenment. And so in this book in particular, I present a particular vision of uh, piratical power, right? Of a transformation of uh, Prometheism as a movement into a kind of uh, piratical organization. Uh, and and this, there's a great deal of detail involved in this and it's multifaceted. It involves everything from blockchain technology and cryptocurrency 
to, uh, in other words, networks, networks based on blockchain technology that would link people at the deepest substratum of the internet across continents and start to create um, territorially discontinuous uh, enclaves of a community across the planet, um, a community whose medium of exchange would be a stable and private cryptocurrency, and then also the building of seasteads which are like homestead, like the old homesteads of the American frontier, seasteads that are uh, very resilient moored structures constructed in international waters outside of the legal jurisdiction of any particular nation. And then of course, um, you know, the use of submarines and of basically false flag navies and shipping fleets, ships flying what they call flags of convenience, uh, in order to operate relatively clandestinely, connecting these largely harbor-based blockchain communities with seasteads out in international waters. And you know, then to look at the most ambitious aspect of this vision of piratical power, uh, I even talk about boring tunnels into um, continental shelves, into uh, mountains on the seabed in international waters, in other words, at the parts where the continental shelf extends beyond the territorial waters of any country and you have hills or mountains underwater that you can bore large tunnel systems into building underwater cities, they will be serviced by stealth submarines. Some of these submarines can remain submerged up to 25 years, some of the stealth submarines that are being built today. And um, eventually it would even be possible, as you know, there's been proof of concept for this, of launching space missions directly from the oceans. So you had this project called Sea Launch that was an international consortium operated until 2014, fell apart in 2014 because two of the partners were Ukraine and Russia. And we know, you know what happened with them in 2014, which then this is a rejoinder to this war now, right? But it started right. in 2014. And prior to the, the consortium falling apart over the conflict between the Ukrainians and the Russians, Sea Launch was able, using this, um, I think it was called uh, Odyssey, uh, mobile sea platform, it was able to launch tens of uh, space rockets from the ocean, which is optimal because you can choose the perfect launch trajectory. You don't have to be, you know, like, like uh, Cape Canaveral is pretty close to an optimal launch trajectory, same with French Guyana. Uh, for the French or Baikonur, Kazakhstan for the Russians, but they're not perfect in terms of launch trajectory. And if you can be, be, be mobile in the ocean, you can choose the optimal launch trajectory for rockets. And so ultimately I envision this sea-based piratical community extending into the asteroid belt, hollowing out asteroid. And by the way, people have asked me like, do you get this from the expanse or something? No, I actually, I did not watch <laughs> Great the show. Great show. I, I did not watch The Expanse before I wrote Promethean Pirate. I have actually since watched it, since the book came out. I can make some remarks about that. Sure. But anyway, um, extending to the asteroid belt and then even beyond to something called the Oort Cloud. The Oort Cloud is a ring of like literally billions of comets. I mean, some of them are like snowballs, but, you know, some of them are, are kilometers wide and... There are billions of these uh, still held by the gravitational attraction of our sun, orbiting our sun, 
at the outer limit of defining in effect the outer limit of our solar system at anywhere from half a light year to two light years away from us. And this is a vast space of potential colonization because these comets include all kinds of basic elements and minerals and you know, compounds that are necessary for um, technical civilization. And that could cre create, you know, help to create self-sustaining colonies in these areas. So yeah, I have this whole vision of basically uh, an extraterritorial community that's operating from out of the ocean depths and from out of the depths of international waters all the way up through the asteroid belt and the Oort cloud and using this uh, expanse as a um, springboard for rebellion and resistance against tyranny, which I envision as uh, the ultimate imposition of a traditionalist world order, probably under the flag of the United Nations and specifically um, with uh, the Chinese and the Russians acting as principal vehicles for the imposition of this kind of neo-feudal, neo-agrarian orthodoxy on the planet. And there you have it, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. Jason is a team of Argonauts all by himself. Atlantis and so much more in our second part. Please support this Red Pill Cafeteria if you find any value in the content. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of your many lifetimes. And again, the Virtual Alexandria Academy is open for thee. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.